In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears, real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. Don't miss one minute of the action. Tune into the NBA playoffs on ESPN and ABC. If you're looking for the most epic place on earth, let's start at the base of a massive waterfall. Then trek through the thick jungle. Then climb to the peak of a snowy mountaintop. Then once you get there, keep going. Because with intelligent 4x4 and 7 drive modes and a Nissan Pathfinder, the search is the real adventure. Available feature. Intelligent 4x4 cannot prevent collisions or provide enhanced traction in all conditions. Always monitor traffic and weather conditions. AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Welcome to Hello Somebody, a production of the Black Effect Podcast Network and iHeartMedia, where we rage against the machine, where we raise our voices against injustice and stand up for justice, where we embrace hope and joy with an optimism for a brighter, more just future. Each week, I'll be dropping knowledge, whether it's a solo episode from me or a hearty discussion with esteemed guests doing great things in spaces and places of politics, entertainment, social justice, and beyond. We get real, baby. I mean, really real. We get honest. We get up close and personal for you. Yes, you. Because everybody is somebody. Before we begin, I want to give a special shout out to my team. Thank you, Sim. Tiffany, Sam, and the team over at Good Juju Studios, Erica England, Pepper Chambers, the hot one, and my social media team. Hello, somebody. This is yours truly. So good to be back with you again, family. We've got some special days coming up. We know that we are approaching the holidays. Yes, we are, where some of us are going to take carb blunts to just eat and eat and eat. I know, I know we are, but after you do that, don't, don't beat yourself up. Just exercise afterwards, do better between Thanksgiving and Christmas and then New Year's. And then we're going to start this cycle all over again. we got some ups and downs and turnarounds, but we are here. And boy, are we here today. We have the honor of speaking with and spending some time today with a ground shaking talent. She is a talent. Yes, she is. 
young, black, and gifted. Y'all know what I'm saying about that? She definitely puts a little extra on her ordinary. She is a poet, and she has been appointed as the Poet Lotterette of the great state of Alabama. Go, Bama! I'm talking about the one and only Ashley M. Jones. Ashley, it's such a pleasure to have you with us on Hello Somebody today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Now, what is a poet lotterette? I mean, people hear that all the time. They hear poems read, you know, during presidential uh, occasions. And a lot of people know poetry and they know poets too, poets that they love, like a Langston Hughes, you know, for example, or a Maya Angelou mm -hmm. or uh, uh, the Raven poet. Uh, I'm blanking on his Edgar name. Allan Poe. Yeah, Edgar Allan Poe. How could I forget? That's one of the first poems I ever learned in school. But yeah, Edgar Allan Poe and so many others I'm missing. But very few people know what a poet laureate is. Please tell us what that is and so, how chosen. Yes. Um, so a poet laureate can be um, over a number of different areas. So you can either be the poet laureate of the United States. And our current poet laureate is Joy Harjo. She's our first Native American poet laureate. Um, you can be the poet laureate of your, your state. So like myself, I represent Alabama. You can also be a poet laureate of a county, a city, a library system, anything. And basically what that person does as poet laureate is we represent the art form of poetry. We are the ambassador for poetry for whatever our constituency is. So in my case, the state of Alabama. And what I am tasked to do is to create spaces for people to enjoy poetry, to be introduced to it, to write it, to hear it, to be impacted by it. And I also represent poetry outside of my state. So whenever I leave Alabama, I am the person who brings the Alabama spirit of poetry with me wherever I go. Um, so that's basically what we do. We're like a- So it's you're like ambassadors. A, yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a government office without having any real power, so. <laughs> Well, I, I I don't know. I think as a laureate, you have the power to heal, the power to uplift, the power to make people think differently. Mm -hmm. That is, in fact, what poetry does. It goes deep. And, mm -hmm. and so, yeah, but I understand what you're saying. But I want to push back on that and say, I do believe as a poet laureate, you have lots and lots of power, the kind of power that people might not necessarily see, but they right. can feel it. Right. They exactly. Can feel it. <laughs> <laughs> And yes. what brought you to the art form of poetry and how were you chosen, chosen or selected as poet laureate for the great state of Alabama? Yeah, so I came to poetry when I was seven years old. Um, I was in the second grade and I was already really into reading and writing and creating art. Um, my parents created an environment for all of us, um, their children to be really immersed in um, those sorts of pursuits. So I was reading when I was about three and that's what I did for fun. I read, I played, I made things, I played with my dolls, I watched public television, that's what I did. So in the second grade, um, there was an assignment given to memorize something and then bring it into class and recite it. And so I had been reading a book called Honey I Love by Eloise Greenfield. Um, and she, of course, was an amazing children's book author. Um, she really did a lot for Black people, all people, but Black people in specific, um, making sure that we had, as children, images of ourselves to look at and books to read that reflected us. So this particular book 
is a book of poetry. And it really impacted me because it had so many images of black people. Every page you turned, there was a drawing of a black girl or a black boy or a black woman or a black man. And the language itself was very black, which was amazing to me as a quote unquote proper speaking child, you know, being in the deep South. (laughs) And I didn't have that, you know, swing to my language like so many other people in my family, my, you know, aunts, grandmothers, all those people had. I always yearned for something, you know, to make me feel more connected to that. And so this book was one doorway in. So I chose this poem called Harriet Tubman in that book to to memorize and to recite. And so um, when the day came, my mom came and dressed me up as Harriet Tubman. And at the time I still had my tonsils and adenoids and they were very enlarged. And so I was a very phlegmy kind of sounding child, hated the sound of my own voice, um, generally a little you know, insecure, shy as a little girl. But when I got up to recite this poem, I remember you know, saying the first few lines, it starts, Harriet Tubman didn't take no stuff, wasn't scared of nothing neither, didn't come in this world to be no slave and wasn't gonna stay one either. And as I said those Come words, I, exactly, yeah. <laughs> as I said those words, I really felt um, just a sense of power and confidence that I hadn't felt before. Um, and so from that day forward, I kept writing poetry. I had a notebook already that I used as um, a quote unquote spy journal because I also loved Harriet the Spy. So I had yes. all my little spy entries. But in that notebook, <laughs> I started to write poems and I kept doing it and I you know, studied at the Alabama School of Fine Arts from seventh to 12th grade. That's where I teach now actually. And then I went on to undergrad and grad school. Um, I've just been very involved in poetry forever. So that sort of answers the second part of the question. How did I come to be chosen? First, I had to live a life of poetry. You know, I know I'm only 31, but I've had a lot of years in the game. You know, I've been doing this for a very long time. And um, I just became very involved when I got back to Alabama after doing my graduate work in Miami um, and just, you know, plugged in to everything that was going on. And so people in the community, because of, you know, all the things that I was doing, felt um, moved to nominate me um, to be Poet Laureate. After those nomination packets were sent in to the organization that, um, that shepherds the process, they're called the Alabama Writers Cooperative, um, I was judged against, I think, three or four other nominees, and I was chosen. Um, I was selected unanimously to be the official nominee. And then I went before the membership of the Writers Cooperative, and they voted me as the selection. And very soon, um, the governor will officially commission me. So that is the process. Um, That is just beautiful. And for you to say, you know, as a 31-year-old, certainly to hear someone say, I've I've got a lot of time in the game. You know, (laughs) you just really got here. But it is because you have poetry found you uh, in a way. You know, there's a saying that says, what you're seeking is seeking you. And yes. as you were seeking to find, what did you say your 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 aunts and your and your grand grandma had that that swing in their in their right. voice? You know, you were trying to find your swing. And since you were seeking that swing, that swing was seeking you, and it just came in the form of poetry. I mean, how beautiful is that? Yeah, I often, you know, I teach too, and I love the well, the world is my classroom now, but I was a college professor at a community college, and I would always often say, always often often say to my students on numerous occasions that what you are seeking is seeking you because sometimes when you're just starting out 
on whatever it is, whatever journey you're on in your life, whether it's professional or personal or a little bit of both, you can get stuck sometimes being really unsure about what your next move can and should be. Mm -hmm. But what you are seeking is seeking you and your life story so far, because you're just getting started, is a really big example of that. You know, I have a quote here from you and I'm uh -oh. quoting you, Ashley. <laughs> no, no, it's beautiful. It says, when I was a little girl growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, I made a plan for my life as a poet. And part of the plan, a big, big dream was to serve as Alabama State Poet Laureate. You said those words and my God, you made it happen and selected unanimously. But it wasn't just you sat around and dreamed that you actually put in the sweat equity to make what you were seeking seek you. And I think even beyond poetry, that is something that that anybody can grasp onto because the unknown can be, you know, I, I mean, people dream all the time. They dream big dreams. They hope a lot. I, I believe that hope is a great motivator. But how important is it to take your dream and then to put forth the action steps to make that dream a reality? It's incredibly important. I mean, I, I have been very focused from a very early age. And I know that's not everybody's story. It just so happens that I was created to be very laser focused, you know, from day one. Um, but as far as dreams go, the dreaming part is extremely important. You have to imagine those things that we want to happen. You have to imagine the kind of life you want, but the yes. imagining alone can't make the life happen. You then have to find those actionable steps that you can take to make those goals become a reality. And that's where um, a lot of times community comes into play. You know, if I had not had, starting out from my own parents, if I hadn't had parents who supported my artistic endeavors and my dreams to be an artist, it would have been a lot harder to figure out, okay, what are the steps I could take? Because one of those steps would have been defying my family, you know, but I didn't have yes. that step. Um, my family supported me and I was able to go to um, schools that taught me the skills needed to know how to write um, in the way that I wanted to. Now, of course, again, there's a lot of it that is given to you. I believe all of us have a gift. So the gift to write is something that I believe was given to me. The schooling part of it has a lot to do with the practical things. How do I format a poem? What has been written before? What's the history of it? These things are all necessary. And then of course, learning from others, you know, what steps they took, meeting mentors and having them tell me, this is what my path was. Here is how I went from you know, wanting to write poems to having books published. Here's how I went from being an undergraduate student to completing my graduate work, all of these things. And also the warnings that they give you are very important. For me as a black woman, it was really imperative for me to listen to those black female mentors of mine who told me, it's great that you have these goals. We need you to have these goals. We need you, you know, to be this person you say you want to be. We need that in our community, but just know that there will be obstacles along your way. There will be people who want to tear you down or people who won't understand you. Yes. There will be times where you face um, discrimination in all facets of your life, the workplace, your personal life, whatever. Um, and that was also very important for me as I set these goals um, into, into movement, as I went to school, as I studied other poets, as I learned the publishing process. And I'm very open too with others about my journey. 
because growing up so so often we had authors to visit or you you know read about authors whenever they were asked a very specific question how do I do the thing that you're doing there was never a specific answer it was always well you just it takes time it takes time doesn't help me understand how to submit my book you know to a press sure. so I am now trying to help others as they go on their journeys by just sharing here's what happened to me if somebody hadn't shared with me what they did I don't know that I would know everything I know you know about the publishing world and um moving through it so yeah and it does take I mean it takes time is one aspect but then mm -hmm. you need something else on that because it does because you have to build and it's beautiful do you think well no I won't I won't ask you that sometimes people either don't know how to share the steps or mm -hmm. don't want to share mm -hmm. the steps you know mm -hmm. or maybe a little bit of both so it is beautiful that you are not that you don't have a fear that somebody's necessarily going to take your place i think everybody is unique and i know you talk about the different voices that you uh like to celebrate everyone's voice in that same vein just as unique as our fingerprints nobody's going to take your place nobody's going to take my place there's okay. enough sand on the beach for everybody That's and we right. often operate from a from a space of scarcity mm -hmm. and may, maybe that might be why some didn't share and then maybe some just didn't know how to share what the steps are because some people just do and then they're doing they're doing it in a very methodically orderly way and then mm -hmm. the universe comes and helps them through the rest of it and they might not necessarily say okay here's step one here's step two here's step mm -hmm. three mm -hmm. but it's beautiful Ashley that you from your experiences new to pull that out so that you could be more of a help to the generation that's coming right beside you and also right behind you. So that's a beautiful thing. So speaking it, speaking of um, everybody's voice, you know, how, how do we celebrate everybody's voice? What does that look like uh, on a small scale? And then what mm -hmm. may on a micro and then also on a macro scale? Well, I think a really important first step of celebrating everyone's voice is actually listening for your own voice and understanding that you have a voice that is valuable and worthy. And once you're operating under the assumption that my voice is mine, just like you were saying, nobody can take your spot. Once you understand that you are you, nobody else can be you, you know, and that what you have to say has meaning, you can then listen to others um, and hear their experience, hear their voice and not feel threatened by it not feel like it's a voice attacking your own personhood, you can say, wow, it's so great that you have a voice and I have a voice and we're all here together having voices. Um, but I think we are, um, as a society, as a country, really still stuck on the honoring our own voices and understanding that the differences that we have are celebration worthy. It's not yes. necessary to erase everyone for us to achieve empathy. In fact, that's the opposite, I think, process for achieving empathy. We have to fully understand ourselves and appreciate ourselves before we can listen with empathy and live in an empathetic fashion um, to honor everybody's voices. And part of that self-realization means understanding where we're complicit in systems um, that are silencing others, you know, and that's a hard thing to do. I understand but it's so necessary to do. Um, you know, just speaking as a Black person, there's a lot of discomfort that we um, go through on a day-to-day -day basis. When we look at our history, we're carrying that history with us. If we are able to have that on our back every single day, then everyone else can do the work of 
putting something on their back too, you know, and figuring out um, what it is that's in their past that they're carrying that they might need to release and understanding that their goodness doesn't become erased if they acknowledge the history as well. That's exactly right. And we're definitely at a tumultuous time again, because mm-hmm. history does repeat itself. And, you know, there was a point in time where, you know, Black people in particular have definitely been uh, through this before. I mean, we have this whole debate about critical race theory, which all of these people are all up in a knot over something they really <laughs> don't understand, number one. Number two, it is not taught in any K through 12 school. It's barely taught in college unless you're taking some specialty and they don't even get it. And, you know, to me, really what that pushback, that backlash reveals is that some in this country and some of our white sisters and brothers, family and friends fear coming face to face with an aspect, a terrible aspect, a horrendous aspect of America's history. It's racist and anti-black exclamation point underscore history. So I, I see it as a lot less about teaching critical race theory as much as they don't want the real history of this country taught at all, mm-hmm. period. Mm-hmm. They, they don't want to come face to face with this. So actually, I mean, you are so right. And you know, poetry in a way can get to those points mm-hmm. and open up people's mind. It's kind of like how what the comedian does too. Right. I mean, they're a little more scathing in it, but comedians can attack issues in a way that may be hard to have a straight up conversation and they have more creative license because they are comedians. I see poetry addressing the aspects of the human spirit and human nature in that way, albeit in a different form, but in that way. So speaking of addressing (laughs) top issues, you have a third collection of poems out and this collection right on time, I might add, Reparations Now, Uh a book of poems about reparations. So I think you ask a question, what is the price of a life, a stolen culture, a stolen heart? Let's talk about your book on reparations, your book of poems on reparations. Why now, what motivated you to do it and what has been your experience on this particular path so far? Well, this third book really has, taken me places I did not expect to go. Um, It has taken a life of its own, which that's what the poems do. I have always been very aware that it's not about me. I'm receiving the poems and the poems do what they must. You know, I'm merely the vessel for them. Um, But this this third book explores, as you said, reparations in the political sense, but also in the personal sense. So there are poems like what I usually write, which are about history, um, because I am an educator. So I'm always trying to educate about what happened Um, in this country. There's poems about that. There's poems about contemporary issues as well, because as you said, history repeats itself, but I would even take it a step further and say that there is really no, time is not real. You know, we're in a constant state um, of cyclical, you know, um, cyclical events. And in many ways, the conversation hasn't even begun you know like we're talking about oh we're post-racial now i'm not some people are saying no (laughs) we're not post-racial by any stretch of imagination we're still really stuck in reconstruction honestly we have not moved past (laughs) that at all um so there's poems about that and there's also poems that explore um one's own personal need for repair because as we know reparations the root word is repair that's the thing that we're trying to do as a country we do need to start also within ourselves. So some of the pieces in here talk about my own repair journey. Um, 
you know, and it can be from anything. There are, are relationships that we have, um, romantic or not, that we feel take something from us. And it was up to me during the process of writing this book to figure out how to make that repair happen for myself, with myself, by myself. A lot of the work that we have to do is with us. We can't always expect someone else to deliver our you know, deliverance <laughs> to us. Sometimes we have to do it ourselves. Um, yeah. So that's what this book that's is about. Well, read us. Let's grace us with uh, one of your favorites from your from this collection. Okay, I'll read what I'm now calling my greatest hit. I feel like I, I take this poem everywhere with me. Um, so I'll read this one. I think it represents my point of view. Um, and just to set it up a little bit, um, this poem does begin with an epigraph from Dr. King, um, who we know is the most like misquoted man in the world. <laughs> you know, people are really interesting with the way that they remember his legacy. Um, but I have a quote from him to open it. And this poem talks about this idea that I've um, come across in my travels across the country with my books. Um, people who don't know that I'm from Alabama because I don't really have an accent, they'll, um, you know, when I say, oh, I'm from Alabama, they'll say, oh my gosh, are you all right? Are you okay? And I'm like, well, yeah, like, why wouldn't I be okay? You know, <laughs> we live in, in the same country. Whatever's happening to you is happening to me or vice versa, yes. you know? And there's, there's no state where I'm not still a black person facing the same issues. Say that. So, you know, people have this idea that somehow if you were above the Mason-Dixon line, it was just a magical place. You know, once the enslaved people made it across the line, oh, the troubles were over. There was nothing, but we know that's not true. Nothing um, can be further from the truth. At all. Um, so this poem addresses that. And the title is sort of a little joke too, because I also have found that everybody I've met anyway, has a tie to Alabama. Somehow, some way, everybody's from here. Um, even if that tie becomes me when they meet me, there you have it, you have a tie. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, 90% of us, you know, black folks from the South and we all know why. So that might mm -hmm. be true, actually, that's hilarious. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna use that now, I met <laughs> Ashley, so I'm from Alabama too. That's right. Yes. <laughs> um, so. The poem is called, okay. All Y'all Really from Alabama. <laughs> okay, we're ready. The straitjackets of race prejudice and discrimination do not wear only Southern labels. The subtle psychological technique of the North has approached in its ugliness and victimization of the Negro, the outright terror and open brutality of the South. Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., Why We Can't Wait. This here, the cradle of this here nation. Everywhere you look, roots run right back south. Every vein filled with red dirt, blood, cotton. We the dirty words you spit out your mouth. Mason Dixon is an imagined line. You can theorize it or wish it real, but it's the same old ghost, see-through, benign all y'all from Alabama. We the wheel turning cotton to make the nation move. We the scapegoat in a land built from death. No longitude or latitude disproves the truth of founding father's sacred oath. We hold these truths like dark snuff in our jaw. Black oppressions, not happenstance, it's law. Not happenstance is law. Amen to that. I was I was taking in the moment. I was feeling all of that. And it is so true. And again, 
you know, to go back to something we were just saying, working up, and I didn't know you were going to pick that particular poem, but a lot of folks do not want to face the ugly part. You know, there's some good in America's history, still a very young nation when you compare our nation to uh, nations that have existed for thousands of years, cultures that have been around for thousands of years. In our young history, a lot of horrendous things have been done to people, continuing to be done to people, but the most horrendous of them all is the unique experience of Africans and then their descendants, the American Uh descendants of slaves. I know now teachers take it and, and academics and people and social scientists are a little more careful to say the enslaved, right. not to take away the agency of, of the person that was enslaved, because they didn't ask to be slave, enslaved, but they were enslaved. So saying the difference between saying slaves and enslaved uh-huh. is a condition that was created by others. But um, your poem just really hit the nail on the head, I think, about of so much that we are enduring right now. There's a backlash in this country. It really is. And it is, uh, it is cyclical. And, you know, Dr. Cornell West, when he talks about, he said, you know, the past is prologue. And as you laid it out, like we never really, it doesn't repeat itself. It just keeps going and going until it's back to almost where it began. Uh-huh. And we got a reckoning of the human consciousness, the human spirit, and really what kind of nation we want to be in. In order to know what kind of nation we want to be, we got to accept who we are. You know, James Baldwin, you're making me think of James Baldwin, <laughs> one of the greatest novelists of the 20th century. Yeah. And one of his quotes, know from whence you came. If you know from whence you came, there's virtually nowhere you can not, cannot go. And another quote, he said, everything that is faced, everything that is faced cannot be changed, but nothing can be changed uh-huh. until it is faced. Right. And that's what I see in that poem. Yeah. You're, you're yeah. daring us to face some things. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't want anybody to be able to escape from the truth in there. I mean, when we look at even the founding of the country, for people to say that we started on such, um, you know, wholesome ideal, yeah. Like for who? Like not for people who looked like me at all, because as they were signing away, you know, the documents, who was fixing dinner and, you know, didn't want to be in America and et cetera, et cetera. My people had been brought my people were the ones that, um, you know, built so much of this country with no thanks whatsoever, and really were met with just horrendous, as you said, horrendous treatment. And for us as Black children to learn about this history, you know, for someone to say, well, we shouldn't teach our children X, Y, and Z, well, what are we teaching the Black children? What are we learning when we sit in a classroom or when we go to a Black History Month program or whatever, and we learn about slavery, And I'm so glad now that teachers are reframing, using different language for it, because instead of making Black history equal to slavery only, it's important to understand that there were people who did the enslaving, who did the raping, pillaging, all of that. It wasn't that we, as you said, we didn't say, oh, I really would love to be stolen away from my home. So happy to be someone who's enslaved. No. Someone actively did this. A human, humans did this to other humans. That's the other part. Yeah. yeah and a lot of systems. my research. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And a lot of my research, when I'm looking at these things that have been done, like there's a poem in this book about Mary Turner, um, who was lynched in um, Georgia yeah. in yes. a very horrific way. And the poem in here actually is paired with Stefan Clark, who was um, murdered by police in a horrific way in 2018. 
their death dates um, are almost 100 years apart exactly to the day. Yeah. Um, but looking at those stories and those histories, the thing that always sort of, sort of makes me stop is to understand that it's human beings who are doing this to other human beings. That's right. That's the part we need to understand. It's not that we can say, oh, these monsters did that. It wasn't humans. Like, no, no, it was people were doing it. So we have to understand that there's not much separating us from any other person. There's a very thin line between you not doing something bad and you doing something bad. And we need to be actively attentive to those things inside ourselves, like our biases, which can grow into a desire to create harm for others. So anyway. Or we can reverse that and have a desire to do good because of what we have learned. Exactly. Deconstruct our construction. Another thing I talked exactly. about, I learned from one of my favorite professors and I carried that on into my classroom to implore all of us, even those of us who, who are conscious, because you need people to be conscious to change. But you're constantly, if you are conscious minded, trying to deconstruct your construction in a way that gets you closer to enlightenment. That's right. Gets you closer to understanding and want to be uh, part of the good of humanity because it can go either way. You know a spot, but not just a spot, the spot. Actually, with the 2023 Nissan Frontier, you know a bunch of them. But the key to these great spots, being able to reach them in the first place. Your spot is out there. Find your frontier in the 2023 Nissan Frontier with standard 310 horsepower, advanced tech, and 281 pound-feet of torque. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. When the NBA championship is on the line, every pass, every shot, and every dribble is immediately, undeniably consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, real blood, and real tears. Trust me, I know what it takes to bring home a championship ring. The regular season is tough, but these games are a completely different level. Now is the time when legacies are made. The best team will bring home the Larry O'Brien Trophy and add their name to basketball history. Will we see a battle between marquee franchises or will we see a new champion crowned? Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year? their year these are the moments of unscripted pure entertainment that only happen on the hardwood you've waited all season for this it's time to take it to the next level don't miss one minute of the action tune into the nba playoffs on espn and abc how do we level the playing field for all entrepreneurs 55 percent of white businesses survive the startup phase while only four percent of black businesses do the same so i want every black entrepreneur to know about the one million black businesses initiative the One Million Black Businesses Initiative is an award-winning program created by Shopify and Operation Hope. They're on a mission to start, grow, and scale one million black businesses by 2030, driving wealth creation for the black community. Out of 6 million employer-owned businesses in the U.S., only 2.3% have black ownership. This program gives black entrepreneurs tools and resources to level the playing field, from free business coaching to tailored training and extended free Shopify trial. Shopify's made a 10-year, multi-million dollar commitment to the program, and it's working. The initiative already started, supported, and engaged with over 334,000 black businesses, helping them operate businesses that sell anything from skateboards to coffee beans to apparel. 
Business owners love this program. Simone Harvin, founder of SC Creative Group, says, The 1 million black businesses experience for me was unlike any other program I've been a part of, primarily because it was for us and it was by us. Here at Drink Champs, we are always interacting with our listeners, many being black entrepreneurs. Shopify is one of those platforms that empowers and emboldens entrepreneurship. So chart your own path for business success with the 1 Million Black Businesses Initiative and Shopify. Bring your business to Shopify with an exclusive offer at shopify.com slash B-E-N, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash B-E-N. Let's end with uh, Mary Turner. Maybe people need to know her lynching was horrendous. Mary Turner, if I recall, she was pregnant. Is that she was correct? yes she was pregnant well let's go there let's, let's, okay. let's go there Ashley thank you no problem and as I'm turning to this page I will say too something that I've been trying to say more and more to anyone who will listen the fight for liberation really will help all of us to eliminate Amen. white supremacy also helps white people it's that's right for everybody that's exactly but again that's right. a piece that people forget it's not just we want this so we can you know leave y'all in the dust we want this so we can all be able to live without the blood and the just the that's right the heaviness that's of all of this. So I, I will read this yeah. poem about Mary Turner, and it does include some um, information at the beginning of the piece that gives the historical context. Um, okay. And I will say this poem is meant to be read in a pair with the other. It's two sonnets about Mary Turner and Stefan Clark. So I'll just go straight through them, um, and you'll hear the different title once I go to Stefan's. Okay. Mary, don't you weep, or Mary Turner resurrected. When Mary Turner threatened to press charges for the wrongful lynching of her husband in Brooks County, Georgia, on May 19, 1918, she was strung upside down, her clothes were burned off, and her unborn baby was cut from her womb and stomped to death. Turner was shot repeatedly, and she and her baby were buried close by their murder site. Like all resurrections, it began with blood, dirt, unending light. The Georgia moss punctuated by camellias, their white hurt stretching across Brooks County. No blight to stain their leaves, just the ash falling bloody from Mary's emblazoned womb. Her baby, a fire, its single soft cry still igniting the air. Could it be that even this baby, even this one-breathed angel was crucified to save us all? Maybe. Maybe Mary and her baby flew up from death in sweaty Georgia, her shallow grave shaken loose, finally free, resurrected. It turns out all along hell was earth. What else could she name that rock covered in leaf and loam? Not loving, not hopeful, and most certainly not home. Stefan, don't you moan, or to serve and protect. 22-year-old father of two, Stefan Clark, was shot 20 times on March 19, 2018, by Sacramento police in his grandmother's backyard. The gun police claimed to have seen him carrying was his iPhone. Is there a police protocol for grace, 
for the moment between show us your hands and shoot. That night, policeman, servant of the gun, did you give space for a man's innocence to bloom? Despite the loaded weight of your finger on the trigger, despite how the night painted that man bigger, made him a giant with a fireball in his hands, despite the loud explosion of your fright. Innocence is for softer things, an open, empty palm, a blooming flower, a spread of rocks becoming sand. Silly civilization, you thought we'd evolved beyond abuse of power, but again, a pruning. What a flower you were, Stefan, and what holiness in your body opening, petaled in the white helicopter light. This, an Armageddon of bullets, flowers, stars, stripes. Oh my, Stefan and Mary, and you said almost a hundred years apart mm -hmm. to the day. Mm -hmm. There's something spiritual about that too, um, in the spiritual realm, wow. All I can say, I mean, you really got me really uh, deep in thought right now and, and heavy, and we all should be heavy about injustice, right? Because mm -hmm. uh, Dr. King, uh, what happens to one directly happens to us all indirectly. And your point about if we have this reckoning, and the reckoning doesn't have to be, it should be, a reckoning can be good. If we have this reckoning, this realization, this opening up about what has happened in this country and who it has happened to for the benefit of we all will come out better on the other side. Oh my God, Ashley M. Jones. I understand why Alabama made you. Why you earned, worked so hard to be the ambassador of poetry in your great state. Reparations Now is the title of your latest collection of poems. And where can one find your poetry for purchase? You can purchase Reparations Now wherever books are sold. If you want to buy directly from the press, it's from Hub City Press. So if you search, if you go to my website, which is ashleymjonespoetry.com, there is a very convenient link you can click to go directly to their site. But you can order from your local independent bookstores, from your non-independent bookstores. I'm carried everywhere, um, or I'm able to be ordered anywhere um, if you shop at the very big box store, uh, you, you can shop there and it'll come to you. Um, but yeah, wherever you buy books, you can get my book. Oh, that is so beautiful. And are you on social media? I am on there. Um, I will say I'm a high school teacher. I'm a teacher of many levels, but I teach high school. So I try to keep it pretty private because you know how students are. Uh, oh yeah, <laughs> I do. I do. So anything for your books on social media or this, people should just well, go to your to website. Follow. I just, it might yeah, take a follow while to accept. Okay. Follow. Website okay. is great. Yeah. Or you can, you can find it on Twitter better. and Instagram, but again, website's good. <laughs> no, I get it. No, uh, social media can be a very dangerous place sometimes. It can, mm -hmm. It's not friendly at times. Well, Ashley, it has certainly been an honor to have you with us on Hello Somebody. Keep shining the light and speaking a truth that is enriching and also piercing to the soul. That is what you do. Thank you so very much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hello Somebody is a production of iHeartRadio and the Black Effect Network. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. 
Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. In the pressure cooker of the NBA playoffs, there's no room to fake it. Every pass, shot, and dribble is immediately consequential. The playoffs are the time for the real. Real stakes, real emotions, real sweat, blood, and tears, real legacies. Which teams will rise from the chaos? Which teams will conquer? Which team is going to make this year their year? You already know when and where to find these moments of unscripted, pure entertainment. Don't miss one minute of the action. Tune into the NBA playoffs on ESPN and ABC. All right, so there we were, cruising through the new open-air zoo, when I realized that the park was closing in like 15 minutes. Luckily, we were in my Nissan Rogue. With its powerful VC turbo engine, well, we had time to see all the animals. Whoa! <laughs> and outrun a few! Drive the Nissan Rogue. Got my Prevnar 20 shot. It's a pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine. For us wise folks, it helps protect. I'm 19, strong. And asthmatic and at higher risk. Get vaccinated. But, but nothing when grandma speaks. Grandson listens. 19 or older with chronic conditions like asthma, diabetes, or chronic heart disease, or 65 plus, you may be at higher risk for pneumococcal pneumonia. Prevnar 20 can help protect you with just one dose. Prevnar 20 is approved for adults to help prevent infections from 20 strains of the bacteria that cause pneumococcal pneumonia. Continued approval may depend on a supportive study. Don't get Prevnar 20 if you've had a severe allergic reaction to the vaccine or its ingredients. Adults with weakened immune systems may have a lower response to the vaccine. Side effects include pain and swelling at the injection site, fatigue, headache, muscle, and joint pain. For full prescribing information, please call 1-855-213-2138 or visit Prevnar20.com. Ask your doctor or pharmacist about getting vaccinated with Prevnar20, even if you've already received another pneumococcal pneumonia vaccine.